0: I'm Aaron Hankin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau.
1: My name is Andrew Cosentino. The Orioles have a rich history of baseball from Frank Robinson to Brooks Robinson to Cal Ripken to Oriole Park at Camden Yards itself. But prior to the Orioles' arrival, Baltimore also had a rich history of Negro League teams. I tried to do some research on them, and everything is kind of brushed under the rug and frankly forgotten. So can you help me do some research on the Negro Leagues history in Baltimore?
0: Andrew, are you a, you're obviously a baseball fan. Are you a player as well? No, no,
1: uh, except for middle school, which was quite a while ago. But no, I, I grew up in the area and always loved going to Orioles games and, you know, discover that there's this whole forgotten part of Baltimore baseball history that largely is untalked
0: about. I have heard of it myself. I don't know much about it. I'm I'm looking forward to finding out more for you. Me too. So if you want the scoop on Negro Leagues history in Baltimore, your best bet is to travel out of Baltimore and up the road to Owings Mills, Maryland, specifically to the Owings Mills branch of the Baltimore County Public Library. Since 2014, it's been home to the Hubert V. Simmons Museum of Negro Leagues Baseball.
2: To my left here, I have a couple of bats, autographed bats, and I would say that every player's name that's listed on this bat,
0: they're deceased. Ray Banks is one of the co-founders of this museum, along with Audrey Simmons and her late husband, Hubert Simmons. Mr. Simmons pitched for the Baltimore E-Lite Giants back in 1950. Ray is proud to call him a friend.
2: And here is an autographed baseball of my buddy. I miss him dearly but I'm sure he's looking down from the day we opened up in uh, 2014 at this accomplishment dedicated to him, Bert Simmons' signatures on this ball.
0: This is fantastic. These are uh, uh, Baltimore Elite Giants and Black Sox jerseys, uniforms from back in the day. And since
2: Baltimore was noted for having two Negro League teams, we were blessed. We had two teams here. The East Baltimore Elite Giants and the Baltimore Black Select. Mr. Simmons would say, Ray, if you talk to anybody, make sure you pronounce it the Baltimore Elite Giants, not Elite, but Elite Giants. He would always tell me that.
0: Ray is coming up on his 75th birthday, but he's in great shape, he's been a ball player himself since he was a kid, and he still gets out there to play softball with a local league. On the day we meet up, he's wearing a custom-made varsity jacket embroidered with Negro Leagues team logos and the number 20. 1920 was the year the Negro Leagues were officially founded. Ray talks about the players of that era with the admiration of a little brother. Over the years, he's had the pleasure of getting to know many of the greats personally but he just missed the chance to meet the legendary pitcher Leon Day. Day played for both the Baltimore Black Sox and the Elite Giants, but he passed away in 1995. In a way, Mr. Leon Day's death is what inspired Ray to become a steward of Negro League's history. Ray met Mr. Day's widow, Geraldine, and promised her that he'd keep her late husband's legacy alive. He's made good on his promise. The Negro Leagues Museum covers four floors of the library, including larger-than-life photos of the players.
2: Now we're on the third level, and this is very special to my heart, due to the fact I met Miss Geraldine Day in 1996. She's the widow of a Hall of Famer, Leon Day, who was inducted into Cooperstown in 1995. I knew nothing about the game until the following year. And on this floor, this is dedicated to Leon Day. From what I understand, back when we opened up on March the 27th in 2014, when Miss Day came up to the floor, when she got off the elevator and seen her husband in almost, was at 10 feet, uh, she almost had a heart attack. Tears of joy.
0: When you meet someone who's never heard of the Negro Leagues, or maybe a kid who you're telling about it for the first time, where do you begin? What's your most basic explanation of how and why and when the Negro Leagues came into being?
2: Well, first of all, I try to feel them out a little bit and start them with the basic question. Have you ever heard of Jackie Robinson?
0: Jackie Robinson, of course, is the ball player who's famous for breaking baseball's color line in 1947. But Ray will tell you Robinson is the fruit of a seed that had been planted decades earlier by the Negro Leagues players who came before him.
2: But a lot of these guys that played baseball back in the day were pioneers who played baseball and
0: they opened up the door for guys who are making mega dollars today. If you're going to understand Negro Leagues era baseball in Baltimore, there are two teams names that you have to know. Tell me about these teams and sort of like where and when they had their moments. The two teams that we very successful
2: having here in Baltimore, Maryland, were the Baltimore Black Sox and the Baltimore Eli Giants. Now, the Eli Giants uh, started back in the 30s. They stayed up until 1950. But the Black Sox themselves, they kind of flared out around 1933. But the two teams that we had had good players on, like, for example, the, uh, the Baltimore Eli Giants, uh, Roy Campanella. Play for the Baltimore Eli Giants. Biz Mackey, played for the Baltimore Eli Giants. Judd Wilson, they called him bazoom because the way he used to hit the ball made that bazoom kind of sound. Some of them were Hall of Famers in Cooperstown they played. Uh, Leon Day, he not only played for the Baltimore Eli Giants, but he also played for the Baltimore Black Sox, and he's a Hall of Famer. And so is Roy Campanella, Hall of Famer. But the players themselves, uh, they
0: were the best of the best back in the day. They obviously didn't play at Oriole Park, where the Orioles played. They had their own venues. Talk about talk about where the action happened and what that what the scene was like. Yes. Well, to me, the
2: uh, there was a wooden stadium, and I'm saying that because uh, wooden stadiums are very rare. <laughs> you know, of course, you're not going to find them today, but even back then, uh, the wooden stadium I'm referring to was the one that was called Bugle Field. The location was at Edison Highway and Biddle Street. They used uh, the stadium down at Westport Stadium uh, which is where the flea market is today. That's down off of Annapolis Road. Uh, the other location was at 29th and Greenmount Avenue. And if you go way back uh, up on um, where Drew Hill Park is today, uh, some of the games took place in parts of Druid Hill Park.
3: There's four ball fields here at Druid Hill Park and this is the one called number four. The other three are really interior to the park. And this one is on the edge of the park, which uh, by the descriptions I read before in the past would have made me think this would have been the one. This
0: is Charlie Vesalero. He's a sports writer and baseball historian. And right now he's standing at a ball field in Druid Hill Park and comparing the view to an old black and white photo in a book.
3: I'm, I'm citing as a source Jim Brady's book, Baltimore Baseball, The First 100 Years. Well, this would have been um, early uh, professional Negro Leagues baseball played here with people paying to see the games they'd be sitting in bleachers but they would be uh, charged to watch the games It was uh, early days in the business of, of Negro Leagues baseball the twenties and thirties is the real heyday of Negro Leagues baseball but here in Baltimore it predates that it goes all the way into the uh, late eighteen hundreds where there were teams playing that uh, were organized baseball teams that were you know, segregated from being in the major leagues Let's go take a walk over to Home Plate and see if we get inspired over there. Sure. I mean, you can see the curvature of the outfield out there. You can see the lining of the trees where, where a fence would have been. Um, I think the dimensions are large enough to, to look like a professional field. It looks like at least 300 feet down each line and a and, and, uh, deep center field, at least 350, 360, just from where we're standing.
0: While we soak in this view, let's rewind to just over a century ago Woodrow Wilson was president. Prohibition had just gone into effect. Women had just earned the right to vote. Jazz music hit the mainstream. And a guy named Rube Foster set up a professional baseball circuit for his fellow black players. Here's Ray Banks again.
2: Back then, the 1920 was the era when Rube Foster, who's known to be the father of the Negro League, started the Negro League with eight, eight teams. The guys played ball and they could not play with the other teams because of the color of their skin. And the entertainers, people like um, maybe Cap Calloway, uh, Lena Horn, back then, they donated funds. And the gangsters also. Uh, today's lottery is legal, but they had a, uh, a numbers game back in the day that wasn't really legal, but uh, it didn't. They got away with it, put it that way, they got away with it. And they donated their monies back in the 20s uh, to the Negro League teams, and that's how they flourished. Uh, I think at that time, uh, black baseball was probably the third largest big money backer
3: uh, back in the day. The Negro Leagues as a business in the 20s and 30s was the one of the more larger and successful African-American businesses in the country. Charlie Vesalero. The life of professional players in the Negro Leagues was lavish and lush and fun. And they were keeping company with jazz musicians and performers in Kansas City and, and, and living a, a great life. They're traveling and getting paid to play baseball. I mean, what else What else would you want out of the world?
0: <laughs> well, a better paycheck, maybe. Ray Banks says his friend, Baltimore e Giants pitcher Burt Simmons, made about $200 a month and they weren't exactly chartering jets to get to their games. When they traveled
2: back in the day, that was very uncomfortable for several reasons. And one of the main reasons is that uh, they may have played three games in one day, and they're all on the same bus. That's not a good thing health-wise. And when they traveled through certain towns, they could not stop to take baths. So they took bird baths, creeks, rivers like that. This is what they did. Luther Atkinson uh, played for the Satchel uh, Paige All-Star. He's the bond-stomping player. He used to tell me that, that they had no choice. When they go going to a restaurant, they had to enter around the back if they were allowed to but they used to have to talk their way into certain things. They were rejected. They played under uh, bad uh, circumstances. Uh, The fields were not manicured like they are today. That's why they were so good. They, They were good with their hands. They could feel better because of the grass, the humps in the grass, the rocks and all, but they were so good.
0: You're listening to the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. More in a moment. Some context now about Major League Baseball during the segregation era. Like, for example, if you went to see a Baltimore Orioles game at this time and you were black, there was a specific section of the stadium where you had to sit. Charlie
3: Vassalero says that was the norm for Major League games. But there were fans of uh, Negro League Baseball who were white fans and I think experienced a similar type of uh, seating organization. Bill Veck, uh, the owner of the uh, of many Major League Baseball teams over the years, the Cleveland and Chicago, he was the signed Larry Doby in 1947, just months after Jackie Robinson made his Major League debut. Larry Doby was the first black player in the American League. And uh, Bill Veck was seated at a game in in Florida, and, and he was the owner of a, a minor league Milwaukee Brewers team. And he was seating, seated, seating... <laughs> with the fans out in left field who it was a, a bleacher section that was designated for African-Americans. And he was asked by some policemen and and, and officials at the ballpark to get out of that section, that, that he wasn't supposed to be sitting there. And he said, uh, you know, for whatever it's worth, I'm the owner of this team. And uh, if you want me to leave this section, I'm going to take my whole team out of Florida and uh, we'll talk about it later. So, so that kind of segregation was happening even to... Bill Vack.
0: Back in Baltimore, in the Negro League's heyday, the Black Sox and Elite Giants games were woven into the fabric of public life in black communities. Ray Banks says those games were as important as church. The good thing is the preachers
2: agreed on <laughs> letting the, uh, the, 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 his flock leave from church maybe one or two hours earlier so they all could attend. A baseball game back in the day and if you look at some of the pictures about the Negro League games, the dress code that they wore, you see most of the men wearing white Panama straw hats. They're coming out of church all dressed up to the games.
0: Say a little bit more about some of those early black players who did little forays into the white major leagues many decades in advance of Jackie Robinson. They, uh, Jackie Robinson wasn't like the first guy, black guy ever to set foot in a like, whites-only baseball diamond. Right, right. Uh, when you think about
2: Negro League, most people uh, think about Jackie first more than anybody else. Players that played back then in the 1800s, 1800, 1887, 1888, that far back, three mainly, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker, Bud Fowler, and uh, Weldy Walker, his brother. Those three guys could play ball, and they played on an integrated team. But they were told they had to stop playing because the uh, the big, I guess you call it, the uh, the big boys made an uh, agreement that the black players, they didn't just want them around them. So they had to
3: stop playing ball until 1920. Prior to the Negro Leagues, there were plenty of African-Americans who tried to play in the major leagues, and some uh, crossed over briefly, and some guys were recruited, and, and there were... They were Members of the major leagues who didn't think it was right either. Just because the major leagues were segregated didn't mean that uh, African American players didn't have the support of major league players. Uh, Babe Ruth, among them, right here in Baltimore, was an early proponent. John McGraw, another Baltimore guy, who managed the, uh, the early Baltimore, all f- they thought, why aren't these guys playing with us? Uh, they're obviously some of the better players. Uh, there was a, a catcher in Baltimore named Biz Mackey who is uh, in the Baseball Hall of Fame and credited with mentoring Roy Campanella, uh, another Hall of Famer who actually is a crossover player. Campanella played half of his career in the Major Leagues and half in the Negro Leagues. And uh, so there was a constant striving for uh, merging the leagues, uh, which didn't take place, and uh, you know, integration didn't take place fully until Jackie Robinson in 1947. But there was an acknowledgment all the time uh, that, that the Negro leagues players, uh, many of them were obviously the equal or if not greater than the Major League players, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, these legendary iconic names that are uh, regularly recognized by baseball fans, uh, are, are part of that, that lineage, that story.
0: I got to pause here and just acknowledge how fascinating it is to me as a guy who doesn't know much about baseball to listen to guys like Charlie Vassilero and Ray Banks and to just marvel at the boundless capacity these guys have for rattling off names and dates. You have to wonder what compels someone to become a human
3: encyclopedia like that. For me, it's not about necessarily uh, just names and numbers. I think baseball is at its best when it's making societal and cultural contributions and I think there's a fantastic crossover uh, between baseball and um, society and culture and you see this uh, how how it impacts life outside of the diamond you know Jackie Robinson's arrival in Major League Baseball precedes the civil rights movement by a, a generation and I think that for me those are the baseball stories that mean the most the stuff that uh, reaches beyond the foul lines, beyond the the, the fence, and uh, into real-life situations. For Ray Banks, that
0: passion for retelling baseball history is personal. I think he might have been born with it.
2: Hustlers, the department store hustlers back in the day, my Aunt Mabel, uh, she was a domestic worker, came home one day with a box, and in that box she opened it up with a little little uniform. I was guessing I was about 6, 7 years old, 5 or 6 It was burlap. It was hot. It was a baseball uniform, Uh, and I put that on, and I think from that time on, I was fascinated with
0: the uniform. I even slept in it sometimes. Seven decades later, that baseball fascination is still in Mr. Banks' heart. He's earned the honorary title Negro League's Goodwill Ambassador, and that museum at the library in Owings Mills is his shrine to the greats of yesteryear and his calling
2: I'm keeping their legacy alive. That's why I'm called the Negro League Goodwill Ambassador. I do things from my heart. The greatest gift you can give is when you give of yourself to help others. And that's what I believe in doing. And I, think that's, and I believe wholeheartedly that's what God wants me to do.
0: You can find a link to the Simmons Museum of Negro Leagues Baseball and a link to the books of sports writer Charlie Vassalero at our show page, wypr.org curiosity. And back now to our listener, Andrew Cosentino, who asked this week's question, Andrew, what are you left thinking here at the end of this story?
1: Well, it seems like hearing all of those interviews really paints a much more vibrant picture of what happened and gives you a lot more context rather than just looking at dates and numbers. um, It really showed you how much it really was a fabric of the city and how important the Negro League teams were to the entire community of Baltimore
0: you got to go see this museum up at the library in uh, Owings Mills. It'll blow your mind.
1: That was going to be my follow-up. I am a bit of a uniform nerd, so I definitely am going to go up to Owings Mills and check that out. It sounds like a really
0: great exhibit. And if you're lucky, you'll be there on a day when uh, Mr. Ray Banks is there, because, man, he really is uh, just an awesome ambassador to the whole era. Yeah, I would love to be able to do that. I want to thank you for an excellent question. Uh, it was really interesting Uh, to get to go down this rabbit hole. And and I learned a lot myself. So did I. Thank you so much. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in Baltimore. Got a question of your own? You can put me to work at wypr.org slash curiosity. And where we go next is up to you. And uh, hey, if you like the show, do me a favor and drop a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen on. Just a line or two. Your words really do help other curious listeners find out about the show. Appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening. Be in touch. And we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture, online at thepeelcenter.org.